I needed to spend some time, some weeks, going over what our mission is, what, who we are and what we do and why we do what we do. Our, uh, I'm not really good at, at mission statements and like saying them over and over again. Uh, keep being told that you're supposed to do that, and I just keep forgetting. Um, but we, we have this thing on stuff that we put out that says, we want to see the kingdom of Jesus transform the Swannanoa Valley. That is what we are about. The way that we believe that will happen is through these four things that we say, we're, our emphasis on gospel, community, discipleship, and mission. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about those four things, about what we feel like makes us distinctively us, and we're, we know that other churches you know, care about the gospel and community and discipleship, so we're going to explain what we mean when we say that. Um, and certainly, that's important for us as we look at the real possibility of moving seven-tenths of a mile down the road into a new phase of our life together, that we want to be real clear that our mission is, is not uh, to find a building. Our mission is not to have a bigger budget. Our uh, mission is not any number of things that you could throw out there. This is our mission. We want to see the kingdom of Jesus transform the Swannanoa Valley. That's what we are about. So this morning, we're going to talk about the gospel. And uh, if you're a church person, like I know many of you are, you just at this point, you're like, oh, heard it, check, done. I can just sort of sleep with my eyes open for a little bit. And I would just ask you to not check out but to pay attention, because we want to be real clear about what we're talking about when we say the gospel. So I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 23. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." He is the image of God, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me pray for us. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us with clarity. And God, I pray that our hearts would be soft, that we would receive the spoken word. We pray, God, that you would help me to speak clearly and effectively. The, there would be a transparent seeing of the gospel. Help us to again be changed by that good news and to the image of your Son, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, there is, a, I, I think I've talked about this one once before, there is a show on TV called The Good Place. Raise your hand if you watch this show. Okay. A little lower than I would like. Um, really like 100% participation on this. Um, the, it's halfway through its third season. It's a show created by the same people who have made shows like Parks and Rec and uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and one of the writers, showrunners from The Office. Uh, comedically, it's right up my alley. I'm just primed to like this show. Uh, but the content of the show is remarkable. As a pastor, I, I watch almost every episode and I say, I cannot believe I am watching what I am watching. This is on NBC. Um, the premise of the show is uh, Kristen Bell, the main character, wakes up and she's told that everything's going to be fine because she's in the good place. And what she's gently told is that she's died and she's made it to the good place. By which, of course, we mean heaven. The, the little flaw, the glitch is that there's been a mistake and she is not deserving of being in the good place which she knows deep in her bones. She is, as she calls herself, an Arizona trash bag, a terrible person who has cheated, selfishly cheated her way through life, fulfilling her own self-pleasure at every turn. And I, I'm not going to tell you any more than that. Uh, you should watch the show. It's not for kids. It's not, it's TV 14 or sometimes TV PG, I can't remember, but it's not for little kids. Um, it's also not Christian, so don't be surprised when it's not Christian. But the, the premise, the underlying question of the show that just keeps persisting throughout the many ways the show changes and shifts, and it does shift and change in a number of ways, is who does deserve to be in the good place? How do you get to the good place? And of course, the way they figure it is by a point system, you do good stuff, you get good points, and when you do bad stuff, you do bad points. How do you acquire enough points? Who tallies them? How do you get to the good place? And this question is, is actually a central question in a lot of people's theology and how they think about God. They, I don't think this show created that mentality. I think this show picks up on a mentality that is out there in the world and out there specifically in the church. A lot of people come to the idea of God with this question, how do I get into the good place when I die? And what many people would say is the gospel is the answer to that question. The gospel is there to answer the question, how do you get to the good place? Or more specifically for many people, how do I not go to the bad place? That's what I really want. I'm more afraid of the bad place than I am desiring the good place. How do I get out of the bad place 
when I die. And for many people, that is the context in which they hear the gospel and they believe that the gospel is the answer to that question. And I think that if you come to Scripture and if you come to the gospel with that question as the inciting question, as the organizing question, you will dramatically undersell what the gospel is telling you and it will be very hard to hear what much of Scripture is saying. And if you really care about this issue very deeply and you think it's the organizing question, how do I go to heaven when I die? And then you like open a concordance and you, well, go online for a concordance. People don't use print concordances anymore. But if you go search for the word heaven in the whole Bible and then read all of the references, you will very likely be disappointed because the Bible doesn't talk about heaven very much. Like, at all. Most of the references to heaven that you'll pick up on when you do that search are talking about the literal skies. They'll talk about the heavens declaring the handiwork of God. And so I have people that show up in my office or in my classroom and they want to know what heaven is like. What does the Bible describe to them about heaven? And, you know, what's that experience like? And I'm just like, I don't know, man. There's not a lot there. The Bible just doesn't spend a lot of time describing for you what happens after you die. There's not a lot of biblical data. That alone should tell you perhaps this question that I'm asking is not the right question. And it is not the question that Scripture primarily wants to answer. How do I get to heaven when I die? Now, the Gospel certainly has something to do with that and it's connected to that. But I think the question that instead Scripture very much wants to speak to is who is the gospel about? The gospel, the good news, the good news that Scripture is organized around is not about you. The good news is not about you. The good news is not about where you go when you die. And Scripture will be profoundly disorienting and disappointing to you if you expect that to be the the message that you want to hear the answer to. You'll instead find the Bible sidestepping your question and telling you something very different. Let me just give you a, a couple examples, if I might. We don't have tons of sermons from the early Christian church. That's it's not what they recorded by and large. We have some. They're mostly in the book of Acts. So let me just give you the, an example of what Peter said in the very first Christian sermon. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's most of the, chapter 2 of Acts. But I'll read you towards the end, the, the punchline, the main point. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And what they're seeing and hearing is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain This is it. Lean in. This is the gospel. 
Let all of Israel know this for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. End of sermon. That was the message that, G- that, that Peter preached. The message that he preached was that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And the immediate response of the people is not, okay, but why is this, what does this have to do with me? How, what happens when I die? That, that for the early listeners, the early readers, would have been a disjointed question. The immediate response to Peter's message is this. What do we do now? What do we do? This Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified and resurrected, He, the Lord in Christ, the anointed deliverer of Israel, He's the one. He's the guy. What do we do now? Peter's response is very simple. Repent. Be baptized. Similarly, the early church will preach these kinds of messages again, and I'll I'll let you hear a, a slightly different summarized version in Acts 17. This is the beginning of the chapter, and Paul and Silas are preaching. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining what? Proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So again, what is Paul spending time in the synagogues preaching? It is not the way that you can avoid hell. What Paul is standing in the synagogue and preaching, what all the apostles are standing there preaching again and again is this very simple message. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. And this actually makes a lot more sense of the the biblical data. If you go and read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus Himself was preaching the Gospel. And if you just stop and think about it for a second, that might confuse you. Because for us, the Gospel is, is usually about Jesus died for your sins so that you can go to heaven. But if Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, what the heck was He preaching about? What was He saying? And His message was very simple. The Kingdom of God is at hand. He was announcing as the harbinger, as the the herald, and as the king of the kingdom that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it changes everything. It takes priority and precedent of all other kinds of kingdoms. Political, individual, social, economic. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus would in a number of different ways, in a hundred thousand different ways, both by word and by example, make it very clear that the king of the kingdom was himself. And that the gate to the kingdom looks very simple. It was the outline of his person. The only way that you can get into the kingdom was indeed all about him. So this is why when Paul is writing here in Colossians 1, he makes everything about Jesus. The language is loaded with Christocentric language. Everything is about Jesus. 
He is the sum of the plan. He is the center of history. He is the thing on which everything else depends. The language he says is that in all things, Christ was meant to be preeminent. Every single thing, Christ was meant to be preeminent. And so when we make the Gospel about us, about answering the question, what happens to me when I die, you are taking preeminence away from Jesus. Even in the question of the preaching of the Gospel, you can make Jesus less preeminent by putting yourself in the very center of everything. And that is not the way the Gospel is meant to be preached. The Gospel is very simple. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord over heaven and earth. He is the Lord who made everything. Like Paul says, by Him and through Him, everything was made. That means Jesus was not just another person. Jesus was not just a man who grew up in Nazareth and was born in Bethlehem. He was not just a person just like you and me. He was a man like you and I are human. But He is not just that. Because by Him and through Him, everything was made. And as the creator of heaven and earth, he has absolute right over heaven and earth. The gospel, when you say that Jesus is Lord, it is a direct counterclaim to any other claim to lordship. The New Testament was written in a place in a time when the people of the earth would greet each other saying, Caesar is Lord. And the New Testament church implicitly and then directly and explicitly grabbed that claim and said, no, Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is the real King. So that means that that Rome doesn't get to be King. America doesn't get to be King. Capitalism, socialism doesn't get to be King. There is nothing, no person that gets to be King or Queen, which means that you don't get to be either. You and I are confronted by the Gospel and told, you are not the Lord. You are not the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the truth of that good news will run up against you again and again, day after day. Because the thing that is in the depths of our guts tells us, I should be Lord. I should be Lord. The world actually works better when I have direct control over everything that I can be. It is our default assumption is that the world would look better if I reigned supreme. It, that, that ethos makes itself clear in big and small ways. In the ways that you get annoyed in the grocery store at people getting in front of you in line when they probably didn't even know you exist, you are affronted that they would not recognize your place of absolute superiority in the universe. How dare you get in front, of li- in front of me in the line? And it's even more offensive that they might not even know you exist. How dare you not recognize me and my absolute superiority? You can see it in the big ways that you and I approach our lives. 
the big decisions, the big goals that we have for our lives, they often almost entirely flow from the way that we want to make the world. The gospel is not about you or me. It is not about how you and I get to heaven and avoid hell when we die. And you can check my math on that. You can check all the sermons of the the apostles in the book of Acts. You can check the New Testament. I'm comfortable with that. There will be a suspicious amount that is missing on that question. Because the gospel is not about you. And it is not about me. The good news is Jesus. Jesus is the best news that you have ever heard. And it is, it is a sign that things have gone wrong. If you would, hear, you would hear that phrase, the good news is Jesus, and you'd be disappointed. If you're disappointed with that, the gospel is, is Jesus, then you've lost sight of who Jesus really is. Because Jesus is the kindest and best person you've ever met. Jesus is patient with you when you deserve no patience. Jesus is not afraid of the things that terrify you that go bump in the night. And Jesus is not repulsed by the nastiest, messiest, most embarrassing sins. Jesus is the best news because Jesus is the kind of person who would associate himself with the lowly and the powerless, the ones that everybody else is afraid of. Jesus is the best good news. And because that's true, the gospel may not be about you, but the gospel is for you. Because there is something of that question that is, that is right and good. What happens to me? But even then, when we're asking a kind of good question, what happens to me when I die? The gospel is bigger and better than your question because what the gospel will say and what we saw here in Colossians 1 is the gospel is not just for you when you die. The gospel is for you now. You and I have been conned into thinking that eternal life will start one day when we die. But that's not what the word eternal means. Eternal means boundless in time. The gospel is for the present. It is for now. What was happening when Peter was preaching in Acts 2? What was the thing that he was referencing when, they're, when he's saying the things that you're seeing and hearing are making you ask what's going on? The thing that he, they were seeing and hearing was Pentecost. And what Paul is saying here in Colossians 1, what the, the apostles are preaching in the book of Acts, what we are saying is that because Jesus is who He is and He does what He says He does, the people of God can be filled with the presence of the Lord of heaven and earth now. That you don't wait now until the end of time. You don't wait until you're dead to somehow receive the benefits of the gospel. What the, what the preachers of the gospel, the earliest preachers of the gospel were saying is, right now come and repent so that you can be filled. So that you can be filled with life and goodness and you can somehow be more human than you've ever been in your entire life because you have the very life of God inside of you. 
God isn't hidden from you anymore. He's not far away from you anymore geographically. He's not bound by your closeness to Jerusalem. He's not bound either by how immoral, how unholy, how separate you are from Him. He instead closes the chasm of separation between divinity and humanity and He brings you in to the center of His life. What will Paul say just a few verses later after this passage? That he is suffering for the sake of the Gospel, but he counts it worthy. Why? Because he gets to proclaim this thing. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This one. Everything for ages and ages. Heaven waiting breathless for this to be revealed which is Christ in you, hope of glory. Christ in you, hope of glory. Nathan's talking about these middle schoolers and high schoolers who are craving hope. This is the hope that they are craving. When they cannot put name to it, when they cannot describe the hunger that is in their belly, this is what they are hungering for. They are not hungering to know that what happens when they die and whether they get to go to the good place or not. What they want to know is right now, how do you endure the hellscape of being rejected by your parents? How do you enjoy the hell that is before you that you are being consumed by darkness from the inside out? And the ramifications are if somebody doesn't do something, that thing will eat at you for eternity, forever. And the good news of the gospel, because Jesus is Lord, the mystery that is now revealed is that instead of darkness eating at you from the inside out forever and ever, it is the boundless, unconquerable life of God Himself who is given to you by the Holy Spirit so that you can have eternal life. Life of a kind and quality that cannot be conquered by sin or death. Life of a kind and quality that you cannot earn for yourself. There are no numbers of points that will get you to a good enough place where you can finally feel like you have this kind of life. And if the Gospel is reduced to just depositing enough points into your account to make sure that you can get to the good place, you've you've bought a cheap Gospel. It's not good enough. The Gospel that God wants to give to you, the good news is that Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, who cannot be bound or held or defeated by sin or death, can come to you and now give you the life of the Trinitarian God. That it would flow in and through you. And that God would be with His people now and forever and ever and ever. Amen. So when we are saying as a church that we want the kingdom of Jesus to transform this valley, this is what we are talking about. We are want the kingdom of the invading Creator God to come to every corner of the Swananoa Valley. And we are not offering to people some sort of fire insurance to avoid what happens to them when they're dying. Because people in our lives, my friends, your family members and coworkers, they are dying right now Hopeless now 
Because their lives are contingent upon their own efforts, their own work, their own hints at cheap glory. And so we are saying that we want the kingdom of Jesus to to move in and through our church and through every church in this valley so the hopeless people of the Swannanoa Valley would hear the good news that Jesus Christ lived and died and was resurrected, that by His Spirit people have been separated and living in darkness have now been ushered into the light forever joined to His kind and quality of life that cannot be defeated by any enemy. We want to offer that explicitly in the offering of the gospel to our friends, our family, and our coworkers. We want to tell them this, not just be nice people in the valley and smile at the person who gives you a receipt at the grocery store. Please smile at them. But you have to make friends with people, you have to bring them into your life, and you have to tell them, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord not as a piece of abstract religious dogma, but Jesus is Lord to come and rescue you and give you what you cannot find anywhere else. We want to tell people and communicate that the kingdom of God is at hand by being a kind of transformative people in this valley. We want to do small stuff that seems stupid, like organizing the clothes closet at Owen Middle School. What's the point of that? The point of that is because we want to be able to tell both the staff and the kids that we're, we are coming into their clothes closet demonstrating to them that Jesus loves them and cares for them. And when the kingdom is fully here, when we see Jesus in unveiled face and He stands on the earth, there are no naked children in our valley. There are no broken marriages anymore. There are no hungry kids So we don't do these things because they're nice. We don't do these things because we want to somehow trade people cheap currency to hear about our fire insurance policy. We are saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is what the kingdom looks like because this is what Jesus looks like. Jesus is the best good news you will ever hear from anyone, anywhere. And we want that Jesus to transform this valley. We want you to be transformed by this good news. You may have fallen so far behind. You have failed Jesus again. And if you look and took an audit of your life, it's hard to see the evidences of the kingdom anywhere in you. And you may be worried the currents of your shame may have carried you so far out to sea that you can never be at home again. And for you too, Jesus is the best good news that you will ever hear. Because He is still bigger and better than anything that you can throw at Him. And you, you may be looking at your life and realizing that you are white-knuckled, bearing down a control over every aspect of your life and every dream that you have is defined by your own appetites. And today, the gospel is standing before you, proclaimed before you. Your question should be, what then do we do? And the answer has always been the same. Repent. Let go. Let Jesus 
be who he is for you. Don't, don't shunt off all of his glory and power for the moment when your breathing stops. But instead, let him rush in like a tide and carry you off on the, own, the occurrence of his own life. And you will, you will succeed and you'll fail and you'll succeed and you'll fail. But it's never about you anyway. It's never about the points you are going to acquire. It was always only about him. So when you feel like a failure again, the good news still gets to be about Jesus. And Jesus will do what he said he'll do. Over the long course of your life, he will complete the good work that he's begun in you. And you'll drink deeper and deeper from the wellspring of his life. He's not going to run out for you. You will be able to drink from that well and at his table for all of time and eternity. The banquet of the goodness of the gospel is limitless. And for you and us, it is now and it is forever. The gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus for you, for his people, and for the whole world. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is at hand. We thank you that your kingdom invades and overthrows contrary kingdoms. And even when it's our kingdom that is overthrown, we sense the relief of having to be the, the controller, the master of our universe. For some of us, that, that prospect is terrifying that they might have to let go of that central place. We all struggle with wanting to claim the place of power and privilege. And in that moment of fear, the teetering between relinquishing control and, and listening to and trusting the good news, I pray, Jesus, that you will so clearly present yourself. So clearly say, this is the better way. Jesus is the better good news. Father, I thank you for your kindness and your tenderness towards us. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be people that, that keep coming back to the gospel. Keep coming back to the good news of your invasive and all-conquering reign. Thank you, God, for your persistence that you will complete the good news, that you will make the good news the news of the whole world. Help us at Valley Hope to, to have everything organized around that good news and also to participate with the expansion of the kingdom in this valley. God, we pray for all of those who, who are near death, physically, metaphorically, spiritually, who are hopeless and in chains. 
pray that you would send someone to tell them the good news about Jesus. Send us, Lord Jesus. Send us. Give ourselves over to you for the works of the gospel, to the glory of your name. Amen.